You're listening to In the Studio with Michael Card. The session is made possible by our friends with the Christian Standard Bible. Learn about this new translation and the many ways you can enjoy the CSB. Explore online when you visit csbible.com. And I welcome you to In the Studio with Michael Card. I'm Wayne Shepard. And before we go any further this week, Michael, congratulations on the new little person in your life. Thank you. You're referring to Jacob Michael, who was Mm -hmm. born four days ago. And uh, he is, uh, he's something else. He's something else. (laughs) You were telling me you held him yesterday, huh? Yeah, I got to spend, uh, you know, a couple hours yesterday. Maggie brought him over and just sat on the couch just the two of us, uh, oh. while they went off and did some other things, and we sat, <laughs> and it was something else. There's nothing so calming as holding a newborn baby, especially when he's asleep, which he sleeps a lot. Yeah, of course. Of course. This is Maggie's little boy. Yeah. Maggie's your youngest. I remember Maggie coming to the studio yes. at Mole End. You know, she was a little girl herself, and uh, she'd come in the back door and peek in on what we're doing there. So, yeah. Hardly seems possible. Yeah. Yeah. Now she's a mom. <laughs> well, yeah. well, coming up today, we're going to hear some Bible teaching from you. That's coming in the second half of the program, as recorded at the Cove, talking about John 11 and Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus. And then Kevin Belmonte will join us in a few moments as we talk about Pilgrim's Progress. You know, we're so thankful to the CSB Translation of the Bible who make our podcast possible. And I know you, uh, you're, you're a fan of the CSB, aren't you? I, I really am. Well, I, I worked on it. with uh, I was the stylist which means I was the only person without a PhD who was working on, I wasn't actually translating anything. I was sort of looking at what the translators came up with, and it just reminded me, you know, uh, language changes over time, and, uh, and we, need, we need fresh translations from, you know, people of faith, people who, you know, see the authority of Scripture and take it very seriously. I missed this particular meeting, but there was one meeting where some of the translators actually started weeping when they started really? uh, talking about how important how important the ministry of translating is and uh wow. yeah so that's that's the sort of people we had working uh people of faith it was it was great i learned a lot interesting behind the scenes story there well we yeah. we talk about the csb yeah. and its various editions here but today we just want to celebrate the translation itself and thank god for this uh, this translation which i've been using now for a couple of years i got my mind beside me here and uh, I have a men's Bible study on Thursday mornings, and uh, I use it there quite a bit. So thank you, CSB, yeah. for your support. Yeah, uh, well, same here, Wayne. It's it's what I use. The only time I use other translations is when I have old notes from, you know, wide-margin study Bibles, and sometimes I'll teach from those. But uh, by and large, for uh, my own devotions and, and when I'm working on new stuff, it's always CSB for, for me now. The thing is, I mean, like— you and I are NIV people, and I love the NIV. It's a great, great translation. Bill Lane worked on the NIV. He was one of the translators. Mm-hmm. But um, the thing is, I'm so saturated with NIV, especially, you know, the Gospels. I know what the next verse is going to say. When I'm reading, you know, verse 3, <laughs> Yeah. by and large, I know what verse uh, 4 is going to say. 
And uh, what I tell people is sometimes I listen to the NIV the way I listen to my wife. It's like I know what she's going to say, you know, right? And, and I'm usually right, right? I'm usually right because I know her so well. And I love yeah, her so yeah. much. That's not a bad thing. Yeah. But you should never listen right. to the Bible as if you know what it's about to say. And the wonderful thing about CSB <laughs> and a fresh translation is the next verse, I don't know how they're going to say it. And uh, it keeps me on my toes. So they did good work. I understand that. I understand that. Susan's on line one with a rebuttal, by the way. But well, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> hey, we have this note from Clyde. You're going to sing for us in a moment, but we have this mm-hmm. note from Clyde, and he says, always such a blessing and encouragement, a cool oasis in the wilderness of life. Wow. Thank you for all the hesed that you show every week. There's something special about getting together each week with old friends, new friends, and mm. friends we just haven't met yet. Prayers for strength and wisdom as you continue this most excellent and necessary work. Thank you, Clyde. Wow. Man, uh, it will it never ceases to amaze me the encouragement that we get. That's so Indeed. so nice. Thank you, Clyde. Indeed. Well, we're going to talk about John Bunyan and the Pilgrim's Progress in a few moments, but let's uh, set it up with uh, this song from Michael: Pilgrims to the City of God. Pilgrims of passion, we follow the one who holds out a cross. Travel a dark road that has but one light For we have here no lasting town And sometimes we run by the power of his might On our own at the best we can plod What we hopefully look for is just beyond sight We are pilgrims to the city of God of strangers lost in a strange land in a fallen world that's not our home but we are not just homeless prodigals here because we have some place to go and sometimes we run by the power of his might on our own at the best we can plot what we hopefully look for is Beyond sight, we are pilgrims to the city of God. Pilgrims to the city of God. Behold, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the great King, to thousands and thousands of angels who come, assemble to joyfully.
Let's follow this pilgrim theme now, Michael, as we encounter our friend Kevin Belmonte on the telephone with us. Kevin, how are you? Doing well, thanks. Kevin is the author of several just outstanding books, biographies, and others. So, Michael, do you have a question you want to begin with uh, with Kevin with about uh, John Bunyan or Pilgrim's Progress? Well, I, I know that uh, one of your connections, uh, your interest with uh, Bunyan came through David McCulloch. I would love to hear something about that. He's one of my heroes. Oh, well, happy to oblige. It's good to talk to you both. Uh, well, I think what I could probably start with is just by talking about how Bunyan was a recurring presence in Mr. McCullough's books, hmm. whether that's the, the biography of Truman or John Adams or his writing about Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, the book just keeps coming to the fore. And, uh, and I, it's, it's amazing. Uh, well, here's an instance about Theodore Roosevelt that I, I set aside perhaps to share with you. Okay. Uh, McCullough said in Roosevelt's case is an interesting story. He says somewhere that he read the book as a child, in which someone said that if you act as if you're brave, it will come to be a habit and you will be brave. Well, Mr. Mm-hmm. McCullough said, that's in Pilgrim's Progress. The man who so bravely wow. played the man he made the fiend to fly. And T.R. was moved by that book and it inspired the way he wanted to live his life. So that's, it's just one instance among many that could be cited. Yeah, of course, David McCullough uh, died in the summer of 2022, just a few months ago, and we miss him already. I mean, I've been rereading his books this summer, and man, I, it's hard to imagine there's not going to be another one coming out. And you actually knew him, didn't you, uh, Wayne? Uh, I, I interviewed him a couple of times. I interviewed yeah. him with uh, John on John Adams' book and, uh, and 1776. Wow. So he was a gracious man, wonderful man. The studio we were in when we did the first interview, there was a wood carving on the wall, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be found acceptable in your your sight, O Lord. And he -hmm. looked at that. The first thing he walked in the room, he looked at that and said, that was my mother's favorite verse, he said. Wow. So he was biblically literate as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, what a wonderful story that is. Thank you. I I feel like I've been given a gift already just hearing that. Uh, I think it's true. You know, there's a, a lovely passage that I actually put in my book about Bunyan, and it speaks to how David McCullough understood that people lived inside the books that they read, and uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to read it. I was hoping Um, you would. Yeah, please do. It says, uh, we are what we read more than we know, and it was true no less in that distant founding time. Working on the life of John Adams, I tried to read not only what he and others of his day wrote, but what they read. Swift, Pope, Defoe, Stern, Fielding, and Samuel Johnson. I then began to find lines from these writers turning up in the letters of my American subjects, turning up without attribution, because the lines were part of them, part of who they were and how they thought and expressed themselves. And, you know, it's just uh, hearing that, thinking about that, Joe had mentioned uh, our kind producer friend in the run-up to the start of the podcast interview that uh, Pilgrim's Progress has a unique place in our culture. Mm -hmm. And I think that passage from Mr. McCullough underscores that. There are so many writers, uh, so many figures, leaders, who took inspiration from their reading of the Pilgrim's Progress. So it's not only a deserving work of literature in its own right, the things that it's given to us in terms of fostering education, just to cite one example. I mean, houses in colonial America and on into the frontier days, if they had only two books, one would be the Bible, of course, but the other 
would be the Pilgrim's Progress. And so many times young people were taught to read in church settings and schools that were established by church folk to help them read not only the Bible, but books like Pilgrim's Progress. So it's really one of those uh, key sort of seminal works that uh, we all ought to know well. Well, Bunyan paid dearly, didn't he, for being a writer? Oh, he absolutely did. And I was just thinking about that, Mike, that, you know, if you think, well, how in the world did we end up with Pilgrim's Progress? Because he had pretty slender education, you know, a lot like Abraham Lincoln that way, maybe a, a year or two at most. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had that gift that an artist has that I think was sort of a carryover from his work in the smithy. He did metal work for a living. Mm-hmm. He was a tinker or brazier, to use the term. I think somehow fashioning words to carry the metaphor over, became a big part of who he was. And in the crucible of his imprisonment for 12 years, Mm. he had endured so much before that imprisonment. I mean, he'd fought in the Civil Wars on the side of Cromwell's army. He knew what it was to see people fall in battle, to know all the hardships and privations of war, his own spiritual struggle. All these things, when he had time in prison because he couldn't do anything else, you know, as a prisoner of conscience, he had time to reflect and to think. Somehow all of that poured into what we have as Pilgrim's Progress. And D.L. Moody said something once that really caught my attention. He said, you know, if I have a hunch that if John Bunyan thanks God for anything, it was that time in prison, because without it, we wouldn't have the Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, my goodness. I've never heard that before, Kevin. Uh, in your research for the legacy of Pilgrim's Progress, what else did you learn about Bunyan that we we should know as we encounter the book today? Mm. Well, I think one of the things that stands out to me is just how long his spiritual transformation took. And I'm indebted to so many scholars who have invested a lifetime in thinking about dates and chronologies and just how that process unfolded. It's something he describes in another of his books called Grace Abounding, And sometimes that's a little hard to follow because the narrative goes back and forth so many times between a place of near comfort or peace and then other moments of spiritual despair, the dark night of the soul kind of thing. But the best information we have is that that spiritual transformation took from seven to eight years, from about 1650 to 1657 or eight. And finally, through the influence of John Gifford, the man who was immortalized as evangelist in the book, uh, that uh, transformation it was brought to a climax. But I, I think about that. You know, so many times I think we're tempted to think about a road of Damascus experience, something that seems sort of instantaneous. Mm-hmm. But in Bunyan's case, it really took a long time. There were fits and false starts and times when he thought he might have reached the hopeful shore, as it were. Uh, And then there were other times where he just really had to wrestle. But in the person of John Gifford, I I think his debt to that man, who, as I say, became evangelist in the Pilgrim's Progress, was so great. And the thing about it that's remarkable is John Gifford was on the other side of that British Civil War. He was a royalist sympathizer. Oh, okay. So here's a coming together of two former enemies... Gifford had had a wonderful conversion experience, became a vibrant Christian. And I've often wondered if it wasn't from the the vantage point of their shared experience in the crucible of war that John Gifford was able to speak in a way that spoke to John Bunyan's heart uh, in a way that no one else could. And so it's one of those beautiful ironies that a former enemy became the, the instrument God used to help bring him to faith. 
Uh, Michael, you may have another question, but before we go there, I, I just want to make it clear that what Kevin has put together is in the Christian Encounter series. It's called John Bunyan, if you go looking for it. And we will put the information in our program notes for our podcast as well, so you can follow up and read what Kevin has written. The thing I'm wondering is, uh, Kevin, you are in this book, you're sort of reintroducing a whole new generation to this to this book. And sometimes I feel like... Uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress has just been sort of allocated to the classics. And what that means is I, I'm probably not going to get around to reading those. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but your, your book uh, it, it encouraged me to go back and, and find the richness of this book that's changed. I mean, it's in 200 different translations. I mean, come on. That's it's, right. it's, a, it's an important work. You know, in writing the book, you're exactly right. What I wanted to try and do is reintroduce people to the book and, and discover the why behind it all. It might be a title or a name, perhaps, in, in Bunyan's surname that we're familiar with. And as you say, it might be one of those books that's there on our shelves, and we, we wonder if we'll ever get around to reading it. It's one of those things you like to have on the shelf. <laughs> but why should we take it down from the shelf and look through it? And so I had mm. been reading Simon Winchester's book, The Meaning of Everything, which was the story of the Oxford English Dictionary. Yes, Oh, yes. great book. Yeah, Michael, you're the one that told me about that book. Uh, it's a great book. So uh, reading that book and, and hearing him describe the wonderful celebratory dinner in 1928 when the OED was nearing the finish line, and they invited all these VIPs to be there, and that scene caught my eye, and I thought, ha, that's the hook for my book, this book I've been contemplating about Bunyan, what would it be like if you could suspend the limits of space and time and invite all the famous people down through the years who have a debt to John Bunyan in that book? What would that celebratory dinner look like? And if they stood to raise a glass in Bunyan's honor, what would they say by way of a toast? And I just dipped into the writings of so many famous men and women, politicians, literary people, I mean, you name it, a who's who of people. And that's the prologue for the book. And that was the way to sort of commend the book and say, look, all of these meaningful, important figures in our culture, uh, in our political leadership circles, have found a debt of gratitude to the book. It helped shape not only their sense of writing, but their moral imagination and to guide their journey through life. Maybe that's sort of the jumping-off point, the starting point for an exploration of the amazing process that led to the writing of Pilgrim's Progress. So I thought, if I can do that and capture readers' attention with a nod to Simon Winchester's work, maybe we can do that. Let, let me ask a very basic question. Why has this book endured through the generations? Mm. Wow, that is a big question. <laughs> I think... There are several reasons, probably three that I could point to. One, it's just beautifully written. And here I would commend C.S. Lewis's essay. It's a brilliant essay called The Vision of John Bunyan. And he just talks about the beauty of the language and how it was just so profoundly new. I mean, helped influence the development of the 18th century novel, just to cite one case in point. Wow. Many people think that, that the book is suffused with biblical language, and it is in a lot of places. But what Bunyan did was he took the common language, the vernacular, and as I say, you know, bear that image of the anvil and fashioning metal and hammering it out and making something beautiful, taking time over it. Uh, he was a craftsman. And Lewis, in this essay, just takes time to cite passage after passage 
of how beautifully crafted this language was. And of course, Lewis, this Oxford Don, had his you know, Ph.D. in literature. You might think he would have very little reason to feel such a debt to someone who only had a few years of formal education. But here he is, tipping his cap to Bunyan and just saying, you know, that you don't underestimate what a fine literary craftsman this person was. But then I think, look at the place that a book like The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit has in our culture today. Well, if you turn the clock back to Bunyan's time, there was really no book that casted adventure story in quite the same way that Bunyan did in that book. Hmm. And when you add to that the infusion of uh, biblical themes, the idea of pilgrimage, which was just so resonant, I mean, even if people weren't especially Christian in their own personal commitment, everybody knew what the idea of a pilgrimage was. And the way that Lewis describes it, he says, you know, Bunyan was sitting in prison and he had an idea for a book, and he started sort of thinking about it and working it out. And in the midst of all that, another book began to call for his attention. And he thought about it, and as soon as he got caught up in the idea, two different things that had been very far apart in his mind and thinking came together in one very focused moment of inspiration. And one of them was the reading he did as a child of books called chapbooks. We still have the word, but it, it's basically a very brief book. We would call them booklets today. But tinkers and peddlers used to bring these around, and they have all the great works of literature, um, things from history. When Bunyan had to leave school, these peddlers would bring these chapbooks around to where he was growing up. He had to leave school, but his life of the mind, his life of the imagination could continue. He could read stories of St. George and the Dragon. He could read stories of the knight called Sir Bevis and his adventures. Somehow in prison, those memories that had been sort of off on the back burner for a number of years came to the fore, and then he was thinking about themes from Scripture, and there was this union of the two that came together and gave us the Pilgrim's Progress, and Lewis was absolutely at a loss for words in trying to describe that whole process, so he read what Bunyan said, and he said, suddenly as I had my method, it was like a string, and I pulled at it, and as I pulled at it, it came. And Lewis just stepped back in his essay and said, it came. I don't think we'll know any more about the process of inspiration than those two monosyllables have to tell us. <laughs> you know? Mm. So it's those kinds of things. I just, I think that in the crucible of his personal experience as a prisoner of conscience for sharing the faith, God gave him a blessing unlooked for. And because it was so genuine and so real and expressed as such a craftsman would express it, but it also had the virtues of an adventure story. I mean, you think of all those different pegs to hang your hat on in terms of something that appeals to a reader. Bunyan was given that gift, and so he would be the first one to point to God, but we can point to the way that God gave him gifts and abilities that led to a great masterwork. Mm. Well, Kevin, uh, this uh, is an obvious question for me, and when I'm asked this question, it's always so irritating. So let me irritate you with an obvious question. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you've you've just finished this book. You've you know you know years and years in the making, and um, so what's next? What's the next thing you're working on? What what are you excited about now? What have you done for me lately, huh? <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. yeah you, <laughs> well. 
Here's the thing. Knowing you two as I do, I had a feeling that question might be coming. Uh, okay. <laughs> so actually, I, I have an answer. Is that a compliment, by the way? <laughs> it is. Okay, all right. <laughs> actually, uh, no, all kidding aside, uh, I'm pleased to say that uh, my publisher asked me to do two books. Usually when I sign a contract, as I did this spring, it's usually for one book at a time. Mm-hmm. But every now and again, the Lord really opens a special door, and he did. I just finished writing a biography of William Wilberforce's great friend and fellow philanthropist, Hannah Moore. Mm-hmm. So that's done. And then prior to that, I had been looking at the writings of C.H. Spurgeon, who's a name that so many will know. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he needed to get away and travel, sometimes for reasons of health, but sometimes just to recharge the batteries step away from the burdens of a very busy and very prominent ministry. Sometimes he'd go for walking tours in England, and sometimes he would take a trip to the southern parts of Europe and tour France, Italy, places like that, and uh, visit museums, art galleries, and just go for long walks, and it really helped him. Well, the reason we know about that is because, sad to say, his wife Susanna, whom he loved to take with him on many of these journeys, became an invalid sometime in the 1870s and was not able to come and go with him. But what he wanted to do, and it's a beautiful thing, is he wanted her to experience as much of what he was seeing as possible. So he wrote these marvelous letters Hmm. that we have in his autobiography, just unpacking all of those cultural touchstones, all the places he saw, the flora and the fauna, what it was like just to see the work of God in the book of nature, as he called it, and it stirred his faith, it it recharged his batteries, to be sure, but it gave us some of the most beautiful writing that we have from him. So I thought, why not pull those letters out and edit them so that they have a narrative flow to them, provide a little introductory material around the edges, and then find images which show the places he was seeing from 19th century books and Photoshop them, make them really beautiful, and create sort of a coffee table book kind of thing, a keepsake book. So I just finished that book as well. Wow. Well, Kevin, you serve us so well with uh, retelling these stories, and we appreciate you so much. I'm sure that we're going to have you back here uh, in the future to talk about Mm -hmm. some of these things. We're going to conclude this conversation, though, with Michael's song, Never Will I Leave You. Uh, Boy, what an appropriate theme, huh, following this conversation. Absolutely, and I do know the song, and and thank God for it. It's, uh, Mike, I just, so many times as I've listened to your songs over the years, and I have so many of the albums, it's such a pleasure to revisit them and to see the way that that you tell stories in song that help me remember the first things of faith and the things to carry with us on the way. So, absolutely, there couldn't be a better song to close with. Thanks. Trust in me And keep your life free From what the love of money will do Am I not enough for you? And never will I leave you That's something I'll never It's true 
song from Michael that takes us to the halfway point in this podcast. We hope you'll stop by the Michael Card Music Facebook page and interact with other listeners about what you are learning, or reach us directly when you send your comments, song requests, or questions via email. Write to in the studio at michaelcard.com. Again, in the studio at michaelcard.com. There's much more teaching and insights like what you've heard when you check out Michael's books and music. Explore all that is waiting for you at michaelcard.com. Coming up, we'll hear Michael's teaching on the life of Jesus after this message here in the studio with Michael Carr. The Christian Standard Bible, scholarly, accurate, readable, current. That's why we're excited to partner with CSB. I'm glad we're partnering with the CSB. I got to see firsthand the way godly scholars work together on this Bible translation. Now I get to use the CSB in my study and teaching. Visit csbible.com and explore the variety of options available to get this fresh translation into your hands. And when you order, receive your 40% discount on your CSB purchase at Lifeway when you use the promotion code CARD40. Just type CARD40 with no spaces for your 40% discount. The Christian Standard Bible, a great translation, a great selection, and a great discount. So many study Bibles and editions designed to make God's Word accessible in our busy lives. Choose a copy that fits your needs online at csbible.com. I hope you'll find one that will help you get serious about reading God's Word. As we begin this half, Michael, we have a note from Terry who says, Hello, Michael, roughly about the same age. <laughs> I grew up in Northern Ireland during the worst of the troubles. It's been quite a journey and pilgrimage to finding a place of spiritual rest. 
I just wanted to say that I've recently listened to your song El Shaddai and it hasn't lost its shine. It's still a beautiful, uplifting piece. Your song keeps me company as I go for my morning walk. I'm now living in Southern California, so at least the weather is better. <laughs> Keep well. Thank you for the music. He talks about his pilgrimage. We were just talking about uh, Pilgrim's Progress a few moments ago. Yeah, it's always good to hear hear uh, from somebody from Ireland, from Northern Ireland. So thanks, Terry. Thank you, Terry. Yeah, what was the phrase he used? It it hasn't lost any of its shine. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that sounds very Irish to <laughs> does me. Does it? So. Okay. <laughs> Right. Oh, it does. Yeah, I I miss I miss Ireland. Yeah. Next up, we're going to hear your song, "Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners," and then your commentary section as we return to the Cove and your teaching on John chapter eleven. Now, this is part of our series. Last time we talked about the blind man in John nine. This is the messianic miracles. Four of them. What what are the four again? Only the Messiah can do these things, and these aren't necessarily biblical. The list isn't a biblical list. It's a list that comes to us from Judaism. Okay, all right. So casting out a deaf and dumb spirit, raising the dead, uh, healing a leper, because in, uh, in, in Judaism, healing a leper was as big or bigger a deal than raising hmm. the dead because leprosy was seen as sort of a living death. And then the last one is uh, uh, healing someone of a birth defect that they're born with, like the okay. man born blind. And the point is, Jesus does all four of these. Right, yeah. yeah, fascinating. All right, well, we'll hear the next in our series in a moment after you sing this song, Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. John 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And if you ever go to Bethany now, Lazarus' tomb is there. What they say is Lazarus' tomb. The Muslims have built a mosque over the top of it. He's whispering here. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now is sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. That hasn't happened yet. He assumes you know that. Isn't that interesting? 
See, this is a basic fund of knowledge that everybody in the church knows. So he assumes you, he, he assumes you know that from Luke 10 and Mark 11. So I think that's, it's interesting. Um, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Interesting. So uh, John isn't the only beloved disciple. In fact, beloved disciples the only kind of disciples Jesus has. Right? The one you love, uh, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory. So Jesus sees sickness and death, and what does he see? An opportunity for God to be glorified. He just looks at the world differently than we do. So that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, John is going to whisper this to you because he knows you need this information because Jesus is something, about to do something contrary to this. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You need to know that. Yet, when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now, that's, that's not what someone who loves a person does when he found out they're sick because we know he can heal them, right? But again, that's the same thing that Jesus said about the blind guy in chapter 9. This is for God's glory. Then, his disciples, then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Uh, apparently he's over on the other side of the Jordan someplace or maybe up in Ephraim. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you and you're going back? So there it is again. Judea is a dangerous place. Galilee is a place of refuge. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees this world's light. It's when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. Jesus, in this, particularly in the Gospel of John, has this awareness of timing. Timing is a big deal. He'll say, you know, for you any time is right, right? But for me, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. He repeats that over and over and over again. And then there's this moment. It's, it might be, it will certainly is one of the most important moments in John. And we read right past it because we haven't been listening enough. But John tells us there's this moment when the Greeks come to Jesus. They say, sir, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus hears that the Greeks have come. And what does he say? My time has come. The coming of the Greeks is this sign he's been looking for. It's really interesting moment. So timing is everything. Um, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. No, so he's died by this time, and Jesus knows. And we were talking over here before about the, the, so what are the limitations of his knowledge. I mean, how fully in, in, incarnate human is he? Because he asks for information sometimes, but at other times he knows what people are thinking. And I think clearly here he knows that Lazarus has died and he's, you know, uh, a, long, a long distance away. And my best answer is, I don't think the answer is one thing. We want the answer to be one thing, to simplify things, because we, we think in Greek. We're Greek thinkers. Uh, I think it's just not that simple. I think sometimes his humanity is sort of more fully there and he's asking, what is this guy's name or where did he go? He's asking for information. But then there, there's, there are these moments where for whatever reason he can access the fact that he knows Lazarus has died or he knows what someone's thinking. So it's, uh, it's just not that simple. 
It's not that simple. I mean, how do you, how do you explain someone who's fully God and fully man at the same time? That makes no sense. How could that be? You know, but it is. And it's part of the miracle of who he is. So, uh, so I think he has this, uh, he, he knows that, uh, that Jesus has, has died. Now, here's an interesting thing for me, and I'm still struggling with this. You help me understand this. Jesus uh, always refers to death as sleep, and no one ever understands what he's saying. And that used to be, it used to stop right there for me, but now I'm saying, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I did some homework. Well, the Hebrew Bible constantly is speaking of death as sleep. So it's not, a, it's not like it's a metaphor that only Jesus used and that was new, and that's why they don't understand. Um, so I don't, that's a question I have, uh, how, and we're going to see that. So he's fallen asleep. I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. What's that? Motif misunderstanding. See, John, that's how we know we're in John. And now John is going to whisper and explain this to you. Jesus has been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So they didn't understand. So then he told him plainly, Lazarus is dead. Yet for your sake, so that you may believe, I'm glad I wasn't there. But now let's go to him. And my note says, their belief is more important than life and death. That's what that means. Their belief is more important than life and death. So he's dead, and I'm glad. You think, wow, that was harsh. <laughs> but his disciples, oh, um, I'm glad I went there. Then Thomas called Didymus. Didymus means twin, and there's an ancient uh, legend that they called him twin because he looked so much like Jesus, but, you know, who cares? Who knows? Then Thomas called Didymus, said to the rest of them, let's also go so that we may die with him. I call that loyal despair. <laughs> loyal despair. Um, you hear the same thing from Peter after the confession when he, Peter says something like that. We're going to go die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. And in Jewish burial customs, it's a quick sidebar, Two-stage burial in Judaism. Two-stage burial. Stage one, you die, and that's where burial, stage one of any burial starts with that. And <laughs> they wrap you up, and they put you in a tomb on a slab. And you stay there for a year, stage one, and you rot. Stage two, someone who really loves you <laughs> unwraps all this business, washes the bones, and puts them in a bone box, ossuary, uh, stage two, two-stage burial. In Jesus' day, they put it in a bone box. In Abraham's day, it was still two-stage burial. They would wash your bones, and they would throw it in a pile uh, in a grave of all, all the other bones, and you were gathered to your ancestors. That's what that means. They dump your bones in with all their bones. Okay? So, uh, so Lazarus is... Uh, he 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 not going to need stage two, <laughs> and he barely needs stage one because Jesus is going to do something about that. So he he found that he's already been in the tomb for four days. So he's been wrapped up and uh, and put in the tomb. Bethany was less than two miles, yeah, less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And that's Jewish. Mourning and burial customs are very precise. There's a wonderful book if you're interested in. It's called The Mourner's Way. The Mourner's Way. And it's, 
It's a modern book, but it, it details all of the details, gives all the details of Jewish mourning practices. And they really are fascinating. Mor the mourner's way was a, a pathway in the temple that was lined out on the, on, the, on the pavement. And if you were mourning, you would walk along that way and nobody would talk to you. But one of the mourning practices was, first of all, your, your family and your friends come and they sit with you, but you go to the tomb as many times as you can during the first few days. So uh, that, that's what's going on. So, uh, so many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Now, I think it was in this room. We were looking at this passage one time, and there was an older woman who afterwards came to me, and she said, I think I figured out why Mary stayed home. Her feelings were hurt that Jesus hadn't come. I think that's a fairly, you know, that's an interesting idea. Martha jumps up and goes to see him. But Mary, she was hurt. He, he let her down. He disappointed her. I don't know. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, what does that imply? It implies he can heal him, but he, nobody raises him, can raise people from the dead. But he's already raised people from the dead. He's, he's performed that miracle. This isn't the first time. So, interesting. Uh, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. What is that? She's saying more than she knows. And people do this sometimes. When Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, he's saying more than he knows. And Jesus will say, Peter, man didn't show that to you. God showed that to you. And otherwise, God was just speaking through you at that moment. I don't know if you've ever done I've done it. I say more than I know sometimes. I go, wow, what did I just say? That was really good. You know, you realize, oh. So Martha is, is, is saying more uh, than she knows. Even now, I know that God will give you... Um, whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, when Martha hears that, she thinks he's saying, oh, he's in a better place. You know, his suffering is over. You know, those kind of consoling things people say to you at funerals. That's what, that's what she thinks. Uh, uh, your brother will rise again. She said, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for saying nice things. And then Jesus does this wonderful thing that he does. He posits himself as the answer. I'm the resurrection. Can you imagine? <laughs> I know, yeah. At the resurrection, I'll know he'll be raised. I'm the resurrection. What? Yeah. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die do you believe this? Remember what he said earlier. Her belief is more important than life and death. I'm the resurrection. Do you believe this? I see. I think it's pretty intense. Do you believe this? Martha says, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After he had said this, uh, she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here. Interesting that that's what they call him. Uh, and he's asking for you. So when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, 
They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb. That's part of the burial practices. Well, she must be going to the tomb because that's what you do. You go to the tomb as, as often as you can. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. So Martha and Mary, you know, you've heard endless sermons about, you know, they're, how they're different. Martha is usually sort of put down a little bit, and Mary is the one who's at his feet and that sort of thing. I don't, Martha is never looked down upon for being who she is. I mean, Jesus does correct her one time. He says, Mary's chosen the better thing. But if you show up at someone's house with 70 people, you want Martha there. <laughs> you, you don't want Mary taking care of you, right? You want Martha. And, the, and, and I've, heard, I've heard women come to me and say kind of pejoratively, well, I'm a Martha. And Jesus needs Martha's. And so Martha comes and Jesus, she says the same. I said this yesterday. She says the same things to Jesus that Mary says, only it means two completely different things, right? And Jesus knows that he needs to talk to Martha. And that's what he does. Mary comes and says exactly the same thing. If you'd been there, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus weeps because he sees her weeping. Because he knows that she needs to see his tears. This is really special, I think. We have this idea that there's this one pat way to deal with people. And that's not how Jesus deals with people. So, so she falls at his feet, which is where you always find Mary. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When see, Jesus saw her weeping... And the Jews who come along were with her also weep, weeping. He was deeply moved. Where have you laid him? Uh, he asked. Come and see, asking for information. Uh, come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Now, there are two words, as you might suspect in Greek, for crying. There's the word klio, which is the word we get our word cry from. It means to weep, boo-hoo. And when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, the word that's used is klio. He boohoos over Jerusalem. This is a different word, adakrasin. The Greek word for tear is dakru. And it's, it's just the image of quietly weeping to yourself. So Jesus sees them weeping. He's on his way to the tomb, and there are tears coming down his eyes. He's not boohooing. He's, he's, uh, he's crying. But, uh. Then the Jews said... See how he loved him. Okay. What do you think? I think this is motif of misunderstanding. I don't think Jesus is crying because of how much he loved Lazarus. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this because it's not really implied in the text, but I'm just saying this is how John does his thing, right? And Jesus is, you know, he hasn't said anything deeply spiritual, but he's, he's weeping. And I, I, my guess is the Jews don't understand why he's weeping. So it says, when it says, see how much he loved him, that's not why he's crying. He's crying because he's in the presence of death. It's a death-impregnated world. He's going to be, this is the miracle that's going to lead to his own death. And he's just caught up in all this. I think it's much more uh, complex than that. But again... Do not be dogmatic about what the Bible's not dogmatic about. But I think it's a really cool idea. And, and why, do I, you know, why do I think it's true? Because I really want it to be true. Okay. So see how much he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Of course. Right? He can, he can heal you if you're sick, but if you're dead, you're out of luck. Jesus once more deeply moved 
And a, another interesting sidebar, you know, Mark is where Jesus is emotional, right? Mark lists, uh, I think, 15 adjectives to describe Jesus' emotional state. And remember, we said that's probably because of Peter. And John, John uses three adjectives to describe Jesus' emotion. Jesus is fairly unemotional in John's gospel. But here he is very emotional. So once more, deeply moved, he came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, and even after he's raised from the dead, he's still referred to as the dead man, which is pretty interesting. By this time, there's a bad odor. He's been there for four days. When I was in, uh, in high school, I worked uh, for an ambulance company, in, uh, Phillips Robinson in, uh, in Madison. That was, that was back in the days where the ambulance companies were also run by funeral homes. Do you all remember that? Which really doesn't seem like a very good idea if you <laughs> think about it. <laughs> I do remember that one time we picked up a, a, a trucker had died in his truck in a truck stop, you know, in the sleeper, and he'd been there for four days and uh, before anybody found him. And so I know exactly, I have a sense of memory of what, what this is like. But when we, picked, uh, when we came to pick up the guy, uh, the, the man who found him said, he goes, he was unrecognizable. And so uh, Lazarus, Jesus is regenerating things. He's not just raising someone from the dead. He's reanimating tissue and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Because if you think of it, everyone else that he's raised from the dead has just died, right? The little girl just died. The servant of the centurion just died. And so, but this is, uh, this is another, this is a whole other level. So he's been there by four days, and it's, so it's not a good idea to move that stone. Uh, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? So it's still is about your belief, um, and in verse 12, he said that this was all for the glory of God. So they took away the stone. And this is a really interesting sidebar. This is a really interesting prayer. He does this twice. He prays for other people to hear him praying. Interesting, right? So listen, uh, he looked up, which is Jesus. This is his attitude most often when he prays. Jesus looks up when he prays. Maybe we should try that. Sometime. Have you tried praying, not bowing your head, but looking up? Because that apparently is how he prays. So he looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. Isn't that interesting? That they may believe that you sent me. You know that's John. Because that's his favorite way of talking about uh, uh, his father. And what this prayer teaches us, that it, miracles are are only answered prayers. Miracles are answered prayers. When he'd said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. What did he just say in 1037? He said, my sheep hear my voice. How cool is that? My sheep hear my voice. So he calls Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. The dead man, he's alive, but we're still going to call him a dead man, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen, and the cloth around his face. That's the sudorion. That's the cloth that will be folded up separately in Jesus' tomb. With the cloth around his face, Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. 
So there's his absolute authority uh, over death. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, not Martha, and had seen Jesus, uh, seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here he is performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will put his trust in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation, which is exactly what eventually happened. And the place that they called the temple Hamakom, the place. And interesting, in post-temple Judaism, they call their faith, sometimes they refer to it as the place. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, uh, spoke up. We actually know a lot about Caiaphas. Again, this is Jesus' world. The high priest is appointed by the Romans. You know, in, in biblical Judaism, the high priest is high priest for life. Okay? The Romans appoint the high priest, and they've been changing them every year. Well, Caiaphas is high priest from 18 to 36 AD. What does that mean? That means he really gets along with the Romans really well. He is their man. He's their man. Okay? So he spoke up and he said, you know nothing at all. And Josephus comments on how arrogant the high priest was in the, his book, The Jewish Wars. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And it goes on to say that he did this to fulfill a prophecy that he had made when he was invested as high priest. Well, we'll stop there. But Michael, thank you for this teaching and for this series. Well, the, the Cove is a wonderful place uh, to go. Uh, pretty good group. Very encouraging. Yep. And our thanks to our friend Kevin Belmonte for today's discussion. He never disappoints. Yeah, I, I literally, I got my, my uh, phone and I ordered uh, a, a, a new copy of Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> and I'm going to work through that. He, just, he, is, he is such a compelling writer. I have his book. He sent me the, the book he wrote on Pilgrim's Progress, and I read through that. But uh, hearing him talk about it, I thought, okay, I've got I've to read this book. Well, as we leave, how would you sum up our time together, Mike? Well, I, I just think I'm encouraged to, uh, to talk to people like Kevin and to, and, and to, to be exposed to um, ideas that help me understand that my world is not the only world that exists, mm-hmm. that there are all these other things out there that are left for us to discover and, and to rediscover. And uh, I think that's one of the, the real importances of, of, of community, that I have friends like Kevin, I have friends like you and Joe that remind me, you know, that there's more, uh, there's more going on in the world than just what's going on in my world. And uh, it's always encouraging to spend time with them. Thank you, Michael, for helping us wrap up this hour together in the studio. If the conversations in this session have sparked some new thinking or shine some light on an important truth, please take a moment and pass along your comments to us. There's several ways to do this. Post a review of this podcast, pass along the link to a friend, or email your reactions when you write in the studio at michaelcard.com. And stay current with Michael's ministry and interact with other listeners when you check out the Michael Card Music Facebook page. We're excited about the partnership with our sponsors at the Christian Standard Bible. Visit csbible.com. 
The Bible is the foundation of all we do in this podcast, and we're happy to point you to the many ways you can read and study with this fresh translation in your hands. Explore all that's available for you and use the 40% discount on CSB purchases at Lifeway. Use the promotion code CARD40. Just type CARD40 with no spaces for your 40% discount. Choose a copy that fits your needs online at csbible.com. And join us again next week for another podcast edition. Now for Ron Davis, Susan Sermon, Lance Mansfield, and our producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for sitting in on this session in the studio with Michael Carr.